0: Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Reid Huber. He's a partner at Third Rock Ventures in Boston. Third Rock is known in biotech as one of the venture firms that creates new companies that seek to turn groundbreaking science into new medicines. Since its founding in 2007, Third Rock has put together a portfolio of 62 companies that have collectively created 20 products that have made it all the way through clinical trials and onto the market. Some of Third Rock's earliest startup investments have now had time to mature. Agios Pharmaceuticals for Cancer and Rare Diseases, Bluebird Bio and Gene Therapy, Global Blood Therapeutics for Sickle Cell Disease, Myocardia for Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, and Sage Therapeutics for the treatment of depression. These are just a few examples of companies that have done what they said they were going to do. They created new products that help people, and they rewarded investors. Third Rock is now investing out of a $1.1 billion fund. It's sixth. I wrote about it on Timmerman Report in June of 2022. A link for those who want to learn more about the firm is available in the show notes. Reed joined Third Rock in 2018 after a 17-year career at Insight, a developer of drugs for cancer and immune diseases. He's closely involved in a handful of Third Rock startups, including companies developing cell therapies for cancer and autoimmunity, one that's using machine learning for drug discovery, a precision neuroscience drug developer, and another that's discovering small molecules that form covalent bonds with their molecular targets. And there's more. In this conversation, Reed talks about how he came to this work. He grew up in a middle-class family in central Illinois, then got introduced to human genetics at an auspicious moment in history, and then built a career in industry that connected the dots between human genetics and the making of new medicines. I should also mention that Reed and I first got to know each other on the inaugural Timmerman Traverse for Life Science Cares in 2021. It was a hiking trip for biotech executives who give back to fight poverty and support science education and job training in our communities. Toward the end, we talked in this conversation about some of the current challenges in the financial and political environment, but also why this is an amazing time of possibility in biotech. Please join me and Reed Huber on The Long Run. Reed Huber, welcome to The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. Good to be here. So, Reed, I have to admit, this was not really my plan, but uh, we're going to have back-to-back hubers on the long run. I don't know if you heard we had Jeff um, Huber on uh, the last episode. Did, are you any relation to him? Do you know him?
1: I do not know him. Uh, of course, I know of him. And it's uh, been on multiple occasions that people have pointed out that we share the last name, which is pretty unique, I think, in in biotech. So, I feel we're a little bit of a kindred spirit, even though we we don't know
0: each other well. Okay. Well, it takes a lot of people to make this biotech world go around, and uh, we each have our stories. So <laughs> um, I'm eager to hear yours. So uh, before we dive in completely on your career and where you see the world of biotech going, let's start from the beginning. Where are you from?
1: I'm from a little town in Southern Illinois, uh, Luke, called Fairview Heights, Illinois, uh, which is about 12 miles east of st louis missouri so i consider myself uh, a little bit of a st louis and by by upbringing
0: okay okay so a uh, small town or mid-sized what was it like growing up there
1: it's a small town um uh, middle class town uh just sort of like a suburb out to the east um, uh i was an only child uh raised by uh, my mother and father um father was a civil engineer and my mother was a registered nurse uh i would say it was a it was a solid uh middle class upbringing but uh, with a lot of the the positive attributes i think that come from growing up in a small town in the midwest
0: uh huh uh huh so they were both uh both educated and this was a middle class place as you say what kind of schools did you attend
1: i attended public school uh all through uh high school um uh, was obviously very interested in in the sciences um largely through my my father uh, in his engineering background. Uh, I remember spending a lot of time with him uh, with the telescope in the front yard um over math homework and 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 physics homework as I got a little bit older in high school. and I think on my my mother's side, her being a nurse it 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 got me probably my first connection to the healthcare industry. she was a registered nurse in an OBGYN office and so i sort of had a very sort of personal connection, I guess, with how care is delivered. I remember spending many afternoons um, in her office or in the doctor's office, um, buying time until, you know, baseball practice that evening or something like that. So um, I remember it very fondly. And I think both of those experiences probably led me in some ways to the path I'm on today.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, was there a a teacher or a class or something else that might have uh, played a role in influencing you to pursue a career in science?
1: Yeah, I was fortunate to have just some amazing uh, teachers, you know, growing up. I I remember particularly math and science um, teachers through fourth, fifth and sixth grade um, being pretty formative to me. It actually um, caused me to take a lot of summer camps in the sciences which i think stoked more of my interest um i loved the aspects of science that you couldn't really see um so i was just fascinated with um astronomy and uh was sort of a voracious reader of of astrophysics at least to the extent that a fourth and fifth grader could could read those things i probably digested less than 10 percent of it but i still remember um uh those times very fondly in fact when i was in fourth grade i came across a lot of old papers that i had that my mother had saved and i guess i went through a period of time where i would i would sign my name at the top of those papers uh read the astrophysicist huber and i would put it in quotes which i i I think back on now and kind of cringe to think that i did that but but i think it it did reflect and really early love of of science and even some of the more abstract sciences if you will, to a child which aren't really um, tactile and 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 visual
0: as as many hard sciences are. It sounds like there was a real curiosity there from uh, an early age um, Okay, so y- your parents valued education. Y- you went to uh, y- you had a solid um, public school um, approach, uh, uh, upbringing. How did you end up going to Murray State?
1: that was a interesting um transition for me so uh as i i may have mentioned i uh i was had a love of baseball as well and uh when i say love it's a little bit of an obsession i would say growing up so ever since i was 4 years old um i played baseball my father was my coach through most of those years he himself played baseball in college at university of houston so i had a little bit of a um I guess, a guiding hand, if you will, to the sport. Um, but I really embraced it. And, you know, most of my childhood memories were, if not in the classroom, it was traveling around the Midwest playing baseball tournaments, often uh, with my father and um, got to be pretty good and had a had a solid high school career and got recruited by a number of schools. And what position um, did you play? I was a pitcher, uh, Luke, uh,
0: right-handed pitcher. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What were uh, your best pitches?
1: <laughs> you know, I was um, I threw pretty hard for only being five foot 10, five foot 11. So I was yeah, you know, it was probably 90, 91 miles an hour by the time I was going into college, um, my freshman year of college at at uh, Murray State. And obviously, that's what took me to the Ohio Valley Conference was a chance to continue that baseball um, career. I, I learned uh, uh, I learned a split finger fastball, which, um, as is true for many professional uh, pitchers, ends up being a savior to your career. It's an amazing pitch once you can learn it uh, and use it effectively. And, and my sophomore year of college, I did just that. And and that really made for a, a really fun final three years of my college career. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, I would say it took me to a great school for me, which was maybe not the most um, academically challenging. Certainly, I look back on it now and I, and I think, you know, should I have been challenged, you know, more or what would life have been like if I would have taken a different path. But if I'm being honest, you know, I actually came out of college with a real hunger to continue to learn. And I didn't have that feeling of burnout or disenfranchisement, I think, that comes from the stress of being in really hyper-competitive academic environments. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like it allowed me to mature, maybe at a little bit of a slightly slower rate, um, but one that, as I look back on, uh, just really appreciate the experiences at Murray State and and uh, wouldn't have traded it uh, for the world.
0: Now, for those unfamiliar, this is in western Kentucky. So I guess not really that far from where you grew up.
1: It's not. Uh, it's three hours due south. Um, so south of St. Louis. And you, the biggest town I think you pass through to get to Murray State uh, is Paducah, Kentucky, uh, which is not a not a larger town uh, than than Murray, actually, but is a is a is sort of the gateway from Illinois to uh, Kentucky. So and did it you allowed me to a,
0: did you get a baseball to a scholarship to, to go there?
1: I did. I was on a, I was on a a, a full acad- uh, um, athletic scholarship to go there, and also had some dollars uh, academically uh, too. So that that took care of the 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 education costs.
0: Okay, so what did you um, study there? So when I enrolled in in Murray State, I,
1: I um, decided to major in aquatic biology. Um, so I stayed close to the sciences. Um, interestingly enough, it was a little bit of a more uh, you know harder tactile science than what I had experienced growing up. But um, I, I enrolled there with that as a, a, a major in my freshman year, and. I think it was the second semester of my freshman year there. We had a, a seminar series where different faculty came in to present their research and their areas of study and just, you know, sort of opens your eyes up to other uh, aspects of the of the department. And I had a professor, um, Ed Zimmer there, who gave a talk on human genetics. And he was sequencing um, uh, retroviral elements in the human genome. And this was pretty early. This was you know, in the very early uh, '90s, 1991, 1992, and I was just fascinated. And This I was
0: manual Sanger sequencing before the instruments, right? It was um, two glass plates, pouring
1: the polyacrylamide gel, using a racquetball ball to get the little bubbles out, and and hoping hoping the the DNA fragments ran straight down vertical so you could
0: read out uh, A, C's, T's, and G's. It's it's the old school way to do it. But retroviruses are pretty small, um, so it was a place you could start um, and learn things. What was it about um, Professor Zimmer's work that intrigued you?
1: I think it was just the, the notion that you were, se- you were generating sequences that had never really been sequenced before. I mean, we were using various model organisms, um, human cells. And he was, um, you know, effectively sequencing, um, almost in an unbiased fashion, retro elements from different species, trying to understand their sequence diversity. And that was such a sort of novel exploratory area that really had never been at the time well-characterized. I felt like when I was working in his lab, that I was a little bit of an explorer, you know, embarking on the unknown and the first one maybe to even read out some of these sequences and it really um, piqued my interest for for human genetics, which obviously I I followed then through to graduate school.
0: So as a little kid, you're peering out into the far cosmos, uh, exploring the unknown, and here you're just peering deep into the cell, into all these inner workings that are similarly unknown.
1: Yeah, exactly right, Luke. I think it's it's um, it's something that I I um have really grown uh, an affection to trying to study things that maybe aren't quite as visual as other things. and perhaps it's just sort of the the creative mind a little bit that lets you wander as to what those things look like or how they function or or um different ways to study them because they're not so visual. but um yeah, I look back on the time with Ed and and Murray State and it's it I think it definitely set me on a. A path to more deeply understand human genetics and and ultimately human disease. I think.
0: So you um, you got hooked on genetics there as an undergrad, and um, then you went to graduate school at WashU in the mid to late '90s. Um, describe that scene.
1: You know, this WashU was one of the uh, sort of the hubs of the Human Genome Project back then, and. In in 1994, when I started at Washington University, you know, the Genome Project as it existed then was a little bit like a territorial land grab. Uh, Depending on what institute you were in, um, that dictated your responsibilities for sequencing. Um, And uh, WashU, and in particular, the laboratory that I worked in for a number of years, um, uh, Dr. David Schlesinger, he ran the X chromosome Uh, sequencing and mapping project for the Human Genome Project. He was one of the the most important early figures in being able to uh, physically map and ultimately sequence a chromosome. And he did that through uh, uh, fragments of DNA uh, that are cloned in yeast called yeast artificial chromosomes, which he helped to discover. Um, And so it was really a a fortunate uh, transition for me because uh, the X chromosome is the home to so many critically important disease genes, and in in human genetics, ones that were fairly well localized because of all the the work on um, kind of classic X chromosome genetics. So I find myself at WashU with an interest in human genetics, working in a lab that had a responsibility to physically map and sequence arguably one of the most important um, regions in human DNA as it relates to human disease.
0: And WashU just really did um, a large portion of the work. Uh, and Bob Waterston was the department head, I think, at the time and has won a bunch of awards, worked together with uh, Sir John Solston out of the UK. Um, so this is, this must have been a, a go-go <laughs> kind of exciting time.
1: It, it was. It was, was kind of like going from zero to 60 uh, as I left Murray State and came into WashU, but um, it was just an incredibly energetic um, uh, period, and I remember, uh, you know, you usually go through three rotations until you pick your thesis lab, and I was so excited to start at WashU. I actually did my first rotation in the summer before school started, so I was sort of one rotation ahead. I did a second rotation in a, a gene therapy lab, using doing retroviral transduction of hepatocytes, and then I didn't do my third rotation. I had a chance. To go back into David's lab, Uh, he called me one afternoon and and said, look, I know you have one more rotation to do, but we're getting really close to localizing what we think is um, the first gene uh, that uh, is causative of a human overgrowth syndrome. And if you come back in the lab, you can be a part of that final physical mapping and cloning of the of the gene." Uh, so I I petitioned uh, uh, the faculty at WashU to forego that third rotation. And I jumped back into David's lab and, you know, it allowed me to then start my Ph.D. thesis first on incredibly solid ground. Um, but second, you know, about a year ahead of all of my classmates. Um, and it was just an amazing experience to ultimately, you know, positionally clone a gene called GPC3, which causes um, this human overgrowth disease.
0: So. What were you thinking that you were going to do long term with your career at this point? Were you thinking get the PhD and then go on an academic track?
1: That was the base case back then. You know, the transitions to industry in the in the mid-90s, um, unfortunately, I, I think it's fair to say we're sort of frowned upon. It was this view that, you know, academia is at the top of the ivory tower and and does the the, the best and the strongest research. And and industry um, maybe was a, a second-class citizen as, as it comes to innovation and basic science. It was sort of so so applied and so commercial that it was a little bit of a step down to move in that direction. Um, it's amazing to think about that now because I, I think in a lot of ways, the community as a whole realizes just how strong uh, research is in industry. But back then, it was a different story. So I, I thought I would just stay in academia, um, you know, do the postdoc thing and and uh, and then do a faculty uh, position somewhere and, and ultimately went to WashU, uh, I'm sorry, NIH um, to do a short postdoc. Actually, I, I helped to move David's lab, uh, which he set up then at NIH and, and sort of did a short postdoc there. But as you implied, I, I, I recognized then that the application of human genetics and DNA sequencing to human disease, um, almost necessarily led you down a, um, an opportunity for new therapies. And I felt a much stronger pull to move to industry, uh, after my time at NIH.
0: I noticed that you mentioned biochemistry was part of your study there along with molecular genetics. Is that where you began to connect the two? Like maybe there's a way to, you know, design chemicals like molecules to, uh, Interact with some of these disease-causing genes.
1: Yes, it was. In in fact, when we identified and 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 published on this gene GPC three, my research really um, moved away from DNA sequencing because I wanted to understand the protein. I wanted to understand how the protein worked and what it did um, in norm- terms of normal human biology, such that when it's when it's mutated or lost, it causes you know, such a dramatic human phenotype, you know, affected males can be six foot 10, six foot 11. And unfortunately, most of them die early on in childhood. So I wanted to understand how that protein works. So I found myself doing sort of basic biochemistry and, uh, uh, protein pharmacology in, in a human genetics lab, which of course didn't, um, wasn't the easiest thing to do, but it did to your point, um, I think reflect my interest in having found the gene. I really wanted to do to know what it does, as opposed to go on to the next uh, chromosomal region and see if you can find another gene. Uh, so I think that does reflect a little bit of my 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 interest in trying to understand function and ultimately understand how that intersects with disease pathobiology.
0: So I think I get the drift that your interest was drifting toward industry. This is what industry does. Um, applications products based on that underlying science how did you end up going to industry
1: so i like i said i was kind of not really thinking about industry and you know back then the way you you found out about industry positions was you know in the back of nature and the back of science you'd look at the you look at the job ads and and i believe it or not i saw a, an ad for um a postdoctoral position at genentech and you know, the the postdoc positions at Genentech in the in the late 90s were pretty legendary. It was an amazing place to learn. You didn't go to that postdoc so that you could become a Genentech scientist necessarily, but you, you sort of had an industry postdoc, if you will. And I thought that that might be an interesting way to sort of dip my toe in the water. So um, I snuck out to Genentech for the interview and the visit. I didn't tell my advisor uh, about it um, because I thought he would Give me a hard time for doing that, and I and I sort of wanted to do this on my own. So, as luck would have it, or 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 bad luck would have it, one of the Genentech people who saw me there giving the seminar knew David very well, and when he heard that I was speaking on work done in David's lab, he of course called David, and told him, "Well, I, I saw your trainee here give a seminar. It was, you know, great to great to, to see him. He had a good turnout. He did quite well, et cetera, et cetera." And, I came back to uh the nih and a week later ran into david and he pulled me in his office and said you know reed where were you last week and i said, like, oh why he goes well I, I heard you were out at genentech so the 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 jig was up as they said and so i had to come clean with him of my industry uh bias and sure enough david knew some tremendous people at at dupont merck and um uh and 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 mark pharmaceutical company. so he pulled a few strings and made the right calls, and ultimately really facilitated my transition to Dupont, uh, Merck, and Dupont Pharmaceuticals, which I made in the late '90s.
0: Okay, so this wasn't a, a big sin; <laughs> it was uh, actually encouraged. It, it was. He was, it was extremely helpful. It
1: was as as many times, you know, you 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 build a bigger uh, a demon in your own head than what exists uh, in truth. And and if I would have just come clean with them, he would have been. Uh, that much more facilitative, but uh, it took me a little while to get to that point.
0: Okay. So you went to DuPont Merck uh, for a few years, your kind of first job in industry. What was the the important thing that you worked on or that you learned there?
1: Yeah. So I, it was a great um, learning ground for drug discovery. So DuPont Merck, which, um, you know, was obviously a joint venture between Merck and, and DuPont was a chemistry uh, powerhouse. And By the time I got there, DuPont was just buying out the Merck half of the joint venture. So that became DuPont Pharmaceuticals. And it was all about chemistry. It was all about medicinal chemistry and small molecule drug discovery. And it was an environment where uh, the medicinal chemists are sort of at the center of the universe, if you will. And all the other functions in the company, like for example, me and biology, um, were there to support medicinal chemistry. And it was a very, very formative experience, not just in terms of the process of drug discovery, but also how important in that environment uh, the chemists were. And, and I often thought of my job as being in some way trying to help medicinal chemists do their job, you know, every every day and every week. And uh, I learned a tremendous amount, both from the biologists and pharmacologists there, but also the chemists.
0: And. You're not that old Reed but back in these days uh all they did was small molecules right That's pretty much it uh you know Luke and uh
1: so it was a crash course in in small molecule drug discovery and you know coming out of there after a few years getting exposed to you know eight or nine or 10 drug discovery programs I was sort of independent of therapeutic area where I functioned uh it was uh, an incredibly rich data set that you now have in your head as to how the process works, but also what does it mean to have a high quality drug discovery program? What's the difference between a a molecule that's going to get in the clinic and and maybe one that doesn't have the right attributes to do that? And um, that that time at DuPont Pharmaceuticals, I think really, you know, sort of shaped and tuned my a little bit of a discerning eye as to what's what's good in a program and and perhaps what's what's failing in a program.
0: So you looked at all that Lipinski rule of five type stuff and um you know PKPD, learning about the you know dosing regimens, like what what makes for a good drug?
1: Yeah, that's right. And and to your to your point, and what you just asked was a was a really, was a really uh discerning comment. It really was. About drug-like properties, pharmacokinetics, relationships between pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics—you know, your ability to accurately and confidently um, predict human dose and exposure—it was all of those things about drug discovery. Some people would say the hardcore part of drug discovery—you know, not the not the target identification upstream or the the, the understanding of new biology that lives upstream of that—it was really a hardcore crash course and true drug discovery. And um, I'm very, very grateful that I had that experience so early on in my career.
0: Okay, so you're there at a big company, and then you made a move to what was then a smaller company, Insight. How'd that happen?
1: So in in uh, 2001, uh, uh, Bristol Myers Squibb acquired DuPont Pharmaceuticals. And uh, the question was what we were all going to do after that acquisition. Um, of course, we had an opportunity to stay at BMS. And over the next three or four months, I got a experience of what that would look like through the integration meetings, and I became more and more interested about just branching off and doing something different. Um, had actually planned to go to Merck, um, and had a, had a had a position lined up to move to Merck uh, in the first quarter of 2022, and it was at the end of the year, in in, in December of of 2001, that um, that uh, I got a call from. The former head of DuPont Pharmaceuticals, Paul Friedman, and who told me that he was going to be um, leaving to join as CEO of Insight. Uh, Insight was, you know, a genetics and genomics company from way back in the 90s. I was a little bit surprised to hear that. But the plan from the board and and from the management team was to basically uh, pivot the entire company. And it was a publicly traded company at the time into small molecule drug discovery. And the way they were gonna do that was um, hire a group of folks from what was DuPont Pharmaceuticals to seed those labs and basically rebuild the company, if you will, with a new mission. And so I joined Insight in, in January of 2002, I think I was about the seventh or eighth employee um, and off we went and I spent the next you know, 17 years there, the most productive time of my career.
0: Okay, so the company was making this big pivot but it had all this information, all this genetics, right? Um, that they were going to seek to apply for small molecule drug discovery. That's right. Uh, the The term that was used in the in the corporate speak was
1: genomics advantaged. Uh, that our ability to do effective drug discovery, which we had all learned and tuned at Dupont Merck, uh, was going to be put to use against the the information, the sequences, the proprietary data that. Uh, insight genomics had. And and we made a pretty good attempt at that over the first two years of the company. But pretty quickly, we realized that limiting ourselves to just what was in those databases or the perspective that those specific data sets gives you was just like I said, it's it's limiting. And so we started to branch out into very different target classes that we just had interest in. Uh, Again, I wouldn't say highly novel biology, but biology where we could um, deploy best-in-class chemistry to try to create drugs, and that ultimately became the thesis of the of the company. And over a few more years, we actually downsized the West Coast division and ultimately exited that genomics um, uh, focus altogether. Um, but but the genesis of Insight Drug Discovery was very much started with that genetics and genomics first
0: mindset. Well, your background by this point seems to have been pretty ideally suited with the background in genetics at WashU and then early industry experience on small molecule drug discovery, bringing these two things together. Um, Were there um, some of the high profile projects that we know of now that were guided by um, human genetics? I'm thinking of, you know, KRAS type work or various oncogenes or you know, the CFTR, um, PCSK9, like these are big success stories that we talk about 20 years later, but were those on your drawing board? Were those things that you you wanted to bust your pick against?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, KRAS was uh, certainly the, the Insight database that we focused on was largely, uh, you know, cancer centric. And so we tended to focus a lot of our efforts on understanding the, the cancer genetics and genomics that Insight had built over those years. And 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 believe it or not, uh, you know the flagship program that Insight has, the the, the Janus kinase inhibitor program, which kind of came to be in in 2005. We we had started drug discovery on 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 the Jack uh, enzymes a few years earlier because of a potential patent that Insight Genomics had on on Jack two. Uh, it turned out to to not be a valid patent. It was never you know pursued and. And uh, and issued, but it it sort of got the 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 yellow legal pad of potential targets. You know, Jack two was on that list just because of that patent, and and so we started working on trying to drug uh, specifically Jack one and Jack two, really as a treatment for multiple myeloma, uh, because those enzymes are downstream of IL six signaling, and IL six is a key survival factor for multiple myeloma cells. So we had our had ourselves a pretty good drug discovery program against the enzymes when. One day in March uh, of 2005, we all came into work and, and there were back-to-back papers in the scientific literature that uh, indicated that Jack 2 had an activating oncogenic mutation that caused a, a group of hematologic uh, disorders called the myeloproliferative neoplasms. And that really set the company on a totally different trajectory.
0: If you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column that covers the major issues and events of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions are available at a discount. Go to TimbermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. And would your organization like to raise awareness of your work with a targeted audience of 10,000 biotech leaders? Consider a sponsorship of the Long Run Podcast. See Stephanie Barnes for more information. Stephanie at TimmermanReport.com. And she spells her name with a PH. You spent 17 years at this company and I'm sure you've got many stories and we can't really cover them all, even on the long run. Um but you, why did you stay as long as you did? And what do you think, looking back, was kind of one of the most important things you, you learned there?
1: So, so I I stayed largely because the science was just so compelling and the drug discovery was so compelling. Um, when we when we dosed the first patients with myelofibrosis with this drug that ultimately became roxalitinib, they were these remarkable responses. Um, I mean, the patients just did incredibly well. And I think those trials, which started in 2007, ultimately led to a phase three trial in 2009 and approval in 2011. So just six years after we saw this mutation, the drug was approved in its first indication. And that velocity really um, uh, caused me to want to dig in and stay at insight and continue to help grow the R&D portfolio. Uh, that was just an amazing experience. And just a few years after that, the second indication came online, Polycythemia Vera. And around that time, we had a full portfolio of agents, several of which you know, ultimately found their path to approval too. So I'd say Insight became a very sticky uh, organization for me just purely because of the momentum and the successes we were able to have in R&D. Um, It had an incredible leadership team. So Paul Friedman was our founding CEO. He's absolutely one of the most important um, mentors uh, in my life, along with uh, a handful of others. And to be able to work and learn drug discovery from him uh, was just a really special uh, experience. So you're right. I stayed there for for 17 years, um, ultimately became CSO uh, during that time and, and saw the company grow to you know, over 2000 people with a, with a global commercial uh, and R&D footprint. So just a remarkably rewarding experience.
0: So then about five years ago, you decided to leave and join, uh, become a venture capitalist and join Third Rock Ventures. What, can you talk me through that thought process? What, um, what made you decide to do that?
1: So I think you know after after all that time at one company, and and it, at that point it was we were a very large company. I think um, you know we were on the S and P 500. The 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 investor relations and and corporate development activities start to um, crowd out your ability to think as as kind of creatively as you used to and have the same intimate touch with with drug discovery as you'd you'd like to. And I started to realize that at the time might be coming. Um, uh, we had just had a massive failure in R&D. In fact, we wiped out about four billion dollars of market cap on the company after uh, a, a drug against an enzyme called IDO1 uh, failed, and 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 sort of tainted the whole immuno oncology landscape. And I, I sort of thought at that point, okay, well, I've accomplished some successes, and I've got a really big failure under my belt. It's it's time to it's time to try to parlay that into a new impact, and and. I'd been in in Delaware now for, I guess, almost 25 years and felt like it was a little bit of a spectator sport watching the biotech ecosystem grow in Boston. And I, I thought, I'm going to I'm going to move my family up to Boston and and embed myself somewhere where I could have a really wide aperture on science and and see if you can't impact the ecosystem from a different seat. And and Third Rock Ventures was a, a perfect firm for me to do that. I had gotten to know the firm for a number of years during my time at Insight. And um, it became a very natural um, point of entry for me into the Boston biotech scene.
0: How did the um, conversations actually get struck up between you and Third Rock? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know that my uh, my team back at Insight
1: uh, knows this, but I used to bring them up to Boston to meet with a couple of the venture firms like once or twice a year just to keep ourselves as, as a Delaware company kind of embedded in the in the in the heartbeat of the ecosystem and and I think after a few years those visits from me and my leadership team started to turn into uh, a little bit of uh, interviews and me trying on the firm and the firm trying on me uh for a couple of years and and so when I ultimately made the decision in in early 2018 to to likely move on um you know it was a it was a pretty hand in glove transition because of all that time spent together.
0: Mm hmm. mm -hmm. Well, and what was happening with Third Rock around that time? Um, There was was this around the time of sort of the changing of the guard? Some of the founding partners were stepping, uh, stepping back and there were some openings. Yeah, that's right. It was um,
1: it was right as we were. Finishing up uh our fourth fund. Uh and and you're right, the founders of the firm were starting to step aside. At least two of them were Mark Levin uh and Kevin Starr, two incredible luminaries in the in the in the Boston ecosystem and important pillars of Third Rock. Um and and the firm was starting to look towards sort of its its future and and the next uh era of of partner level leadership in the firm. And so I will say that um part of my interest in joining. Third Rock was um, also with that in mind. What, what would it mean to, to be involved in taking one of the most storied and, and successful you know, company creation venture firms in Boston and, 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 and participate in trying to make that an equally important and impactful firm over the next 15 years or 20 years? And probably it's going to take some, some things that are a little bit different because the macro environment and the ecosystem's changed certainly going to be a different team because of, of just the tenure that those folks had had over all their successful years before me. Uh, and it became actually an important draw, Luke, uh, to to sort of help participate in that um, continued transition and, and evolution of Third Rock. Um, and that was a big draw for me.
0: Yeah. And for those who are not familiar, I mean, I remember covering the firm in its very early days, and it it really was born out of the Great Recession. Kind of that 07, 08 through 2012 period when there was not a lot of venture capital investment in biotech. <laughs> and the partners looked around and said, there's a lot of great science. Um, let's uh, find ways to build companies around it. And they were really successful, put together a, a bunch of companies that are publicly traded today. Um, but but uh, about 10 years in, like around the time you uh, arrived, you um, we were in a bull market uh, things were booming there was a lot more people doing this venture creation business it was more competitive maybe a little harder to find some of the the groundbreaking ideas um you saw all that and thought this this sounds interesting i i i want to dig in
1: yeah you you're exactly right you know it's um there's a lot of things that attracted me to third rock and, and to this day i think that are sort of pillars of Of differentiation and importance to us as a firm, but you know, one of the one of the key attributes was the pride that the firm takes in the drugs they have approved. Um, So you know, they've been around since two thousand seven. The firm that's when it was started, and during that time, I think there are now twenty medicines approved and in use um, around the globe from companies that Third Rock started, and it was that metric sort of patient impact through products approved that was the metric that not only matters most to the firm but but as importantly matters a tremendous amount to our limited partners our investors um this is a group of people that have been cultivated and are full on believers that medicines create value big value with a capital v and so as a venture firm um to be able to step into an environment which is you know, intensely science and medicine focused, but also equally intensely focused on patient impact at the end of the day, you know, it felt, it feels many times much more like an R&D organization than a venture capital firm. You know, we don't have drug discovery programs per se. We have companies in our portfolio or in our pipeline, but the North Star is exactly the same, Luke. And, and I think it's that very clear mission uh credit to to Mark Levin and Kevin Starr and Bob Tupper for really you know imprinting that into the DNA of the firm that that was really the draw for me and continues to this day to be I think the most important North star that we have as a firm
0: mm-hmm. 20 approved medicines and um a lot of those companies that were started in the early days um you know, uh, they they weren't starting on the 50yard line <laughs> um they they were really pretty early and raw uh, and took some time to mature um and uh, enough time has gone by uh to see some of the the fruits of these labors uh translated into medicines yeah. um okay so what kinds of things were you excited to work on types of um either therapeutic areas or modalities, what did you think you could um how did you think of your role and uh, how you could help move the needle for third rock when you joined?
1: When I first started, you know you you tend to stay close to your knitting a little bit. um and so I you know having spent you know virtually the entirety of my career in in small molecule drug discovery, and and the vast majority of that time in in oncology and autoimmunity, you know, those are the projects uh, that I naturally gravitated to and and even supporting some of our companies, our launched companies in that space is where I spent a lot of my uh, early time as I got um, settled in. Um, And, you know, oncology has always been an important cornerstone of the firm. I think just over half of the companies Third Rock has started over the years are in that space. Um, so there was a lot I could plug into there, and it, it helped me to get my sea legs a little bit, understanding how projects evolve at Third Rock and how how launch decisions are made at Third Rock, and even how our portfolio companies are are, are governed, either from a from an R and D standpoint, from the board, or even from a financial standpoint in terms of our uh, the positions that we hold. Um, it's not an easy transition, I would say, coming from an R and D environment to venture capital uh environment especially one where the the aperture is so wide uh on science and so i very quickly found myself you know working in you know more complex large molecule programs and bi specific programs to you know cell therapy efforts um and certainly well outside of oncology and autoimmunity to neuroscience and rare genetic diseases and and i think that is exactly what i was looking for Uh, i was looking for a you know a broad scientific remit that i think you know we're so fortunate to be able to operate in a time where you know innovation is not siloed it's really end-to-end uh, across disease areas and and certainly third rock's um, uh, portfolio in a lot of ways reflects that
0: it's like going to school again there's always <laughs> more to learn every day <laughs> yeah
1: that's right that's right it's a very hum- i mean Science in general is a humbling experience. It's one of those fields that, you know, you're wrong more than you're right and it doesn't matter if you're a basic scientist in the lab or you're doing, you know, applied pharmaceutical R&D, unfortunately our hit rate is still is still low. So you have to enter into that with a lot of humility and and I think the team here that we've assembled at Third Rock is pretty special in that they're largely all operators in companies, former operators. And so they have the, the war wounds and the scar tissue of those failures and, and hopefully some successes too that that we can learn from collectively. And so this notion of, of group genius in the firm, which is really the concept of, of collaboration and discussion and debate to try to get to the best answer, not always the right answer. It's really a, a core pillar of Third Rock. And it's one that I, I very much appreciate and is certainly reflected in my career, which has plenty of failures and and a, and a few a few good things that have come out of it too.
0: Mm-hmm. Now you're talking about culture there, of the firm. One of the things you emphasize a lot are people, um, finding people to work with, to go on these long journeys with, entrepreneurs, partners, scientific advisors, all of them. How how do you um, what do you look for in people?
1: So there's a few things I think that stand out um, for me, and and maybe underpin some of our recruiting. I think one of them is a is a patient first mindset. Um, you know, we love folks in our ecosystem and in our portfolio companies and in our firm who wake up every day and want to bring a medicine to a patient. It, it, it sounds it sounds simple, but again, as an overall governing principle. When that's what you want to do, when that's your core value, then it really shapes a lot of the decisions you make. Um, a lot of the companies you try to create and a lot of the R&D strategies you have. Even the way that you finance a company um, is different when your ultimate goal is to try to bring a medicine forward. And having people that that hold on to that mindset, that's super important. Um, you know, Additionally, I mentioned this sort of discussion and debate. Uh, group genius culture you know creating a company out of the ether is an exceedingly creative process it's also an exceedingly collaborative and multidisciplinary process you one person cannot do that and you need multiple points of view multiple experiences more, multiple orthogonal ideas to ultimately coalesce to build a great company and i think there is a component of scale to that group genius and and so we look for people that want to operate in that environment. Um, You know, we're exceedingly non-hierarchical at Third Rock, uh, certainly across the partnership and even how many of our projects are run. And having people that want to step into that kind of environment, want to contribute and, and critique, but also be critiqued and welcome that is also an important part, Luke.
0: You know, this sounds pretty similar Culturally, to what I remember the firm being like 10 or 15 years ago, is there anything that you're doing differently um, in the way you operate or the the way you think about um, uh, what you do, especially now in this uh, very difficult down market that we're in?
1: yeah the the model has evolved actually, the model evolved a lot even before I joined, but it's continued to evolve and to your point, sometimes those are internal reasons and sort of team philosophy, but other times they're they're sort of imposed on you from the macro environment. um I think a couple of things that have that have evolved a little bit more than others over the recent years is um being very clear when we're pulling together a company thesis and ultimately, deciding to launch a company, that we understand really well what it is we're solving for. And specifically, what is the importance of this to patients? Um, We also work really hard on maturing our seeded companies more maybe than we had in the past. Um, Third Rock has a history of working on some of the most innovative leading edges of science. And sometimes uh, it can take a while. To, to see the first product emerge from that. We now sort of weaponize our capital and our time inside the firm to mature our companies also along a product axis so that when they're ultimately ready to launch, that product is closer to in hand. And, and maybe those early financings are going to take the company to the clinical data, not just the preclinical data. Um, you know, We often talk about financing to value creation milestones, not de-risking milestones. I think that's all about creating uh, financial resiliency in the company to get to those data sets that matter to investors uh, and ultimately matter to patients. And so many times now, those are clinical data to your point. Um, And last are the importance of of syndication to our launches. Um, Third Rock went through a period where Virtually all their launches for an entire fund were were non syndicated or or very little syndication. And now I think the last um, uh, the last 14 or 15 launches we've had since I've joined, um, we've syndicated all of those series A's heavily. And the reason that's important is it it brings other strategic thinkers around the table to help you with that company. And it also um, increases the adaptability of that company to twists and turns in the road, which inevitably happen. And to have those partners around the table, even at the early stages of a company launch, is very, very important. So those are all, I think, reflections of of changes in the firm or evolutions in the firm that maybe individually um, aren't aren't, um, disruptive, but collectively can really make a difference, especially when we're in an environment like we are today.
0: Do you have to become a little more cautious, a little more near-term focused in this kind of down market?
1: No, and and we we talk a lot about this because I think it's a slippery slope, Luke, that this sort of discriminating financial environment can lead teams to. They become conservative and try to do things that are a little bit more certain. what third rock will not change or evolve from is a focus on innovation disruption really novel approaches things that people maybe haven't tried and converging areas of science which are completely new and untested that that is in the dna of the firm i think the question is how do we mitigate some of the risks that come from operating in that environment and that's where things like maturity and syndication that I mentioned earlier, those are some of the tools we can have to soften, if you will, some of the sharp edges on that innovation approach. Um, but the types of companies we launch and our willingness to go into new areas in, in a bold way where one has to have a really long-term arc um, on returns, that's still you know front and center in our mind. And, and thankfully, it's front and center in all of our uh, investors' minds as well.
0: So you still need to think on, on those uh, five and 10-year cycle terms. Yeah,
1: that's right. I mean, our, our, our funds typically mature over a eight to 10-year arc and sometimes even a few years longer than that. So that gives us um, uh, many degrees of freedom to think about um, uh, trajectory of new areas of science and new modalities and and tackling diseases maybe that have never been tackled before. Uh, and I think it's one of the key if you will, success factors of this of this model is that we don't have to think near-term. Um, we have the stability of investors and we certainly have the access to capital that we can take some pretty long-term bets that we think are gonna be important to patients in the long run.
0: Okay, so the stock market as you look at it now, I mean, it's, it's in the doldrums. It has been for a long time. It's not really reflecting the vibrancy of the science and, and the products that are emerging from the industry's collective pipeline. Um, There's also, so there's a harsh financial environment, but there's also a rough political environment after the Inflation Reduction Act was passed. And um, I know you've got some views on this. (laughs) Um, Why have you, uh, why does this piece of legislation matter to you and the industry? And how does it influence what you do?
1: I think there's a few pieces that underpin why it it matters. And, And this is a perspective that I have, I think, depending on where you sit in the ecosystem, you know, obviously people's views can be, can be different, but, I mean, one of the aspects of just general pricing reform conversations, I think, is that, you know, it polls exceedingly well across both sides of the aisle, uh, 70 to 80 percent across Democrats and Republicans. But I find it to be um, sort of a low rung or lowest common denominator conversation. I don't think pricing reform per se is is what gets at the heart of the issue. I think the heart of the issue that hits, let's say, a cancer patient dealing with a diagnosis is out-of-pocket expense that's what matters to them um the very fact that we have something like a copay or coinsurance you know where the patient shares the burden of their cost when you have a life-threatening devastating diagnosis like cancer is itself difficult you know this this isn't seasonal allergy medicines and where copays are used to drive down utilization this is cancer you know these medicines are there for a reason they save people's lives and we know that when patients have a high copay let's say more than $2000 their um, medicine abandonment rate the, the rate at which they stop taking their medicines in, in oncology is almost five times as high and so part of the issue with the ira is that it's not focusing on what matters which is patient out of pocket costs the second piece that kind of gets, I think, a lot more of the headlines is that for some reason, you know, we've decided that the modality type should dictate its its point in time when you can have, uh, you know, changes in price or almost a loss of exclusivity event, that small molecules aren't as valuable as large molecules and so therefore can be cut off earlier. That's just, you know, I- impossible to rationalize. And and the, the, the negative consequences of that decision across um, small molecule indications, across oncology, across rare genetic diseases, have the potential to be um, very far-reaching. And I think there's um, a lack of understanding of just how interconnected, for example, the innovation ecosystem is to, you know, big pharma, top-line revenue growth. Um, These things are all intimately connected, and they require you know very careful understanding that isn't really captured in just a headline message of drug prices are too high. That's that's a very simple minded view of the problem,
0: yeah. And supporters of this law would call this a negotiation on prices, and the critics in the industry call it price controls. Um, it depends on your point of view, I guess. Um, but from where you stand as someone who has to place these substantial bets on new medicines that you hope will come to fruition in the next 10 years, does this is this influencing how you make those decisions, where you invest and where you will not? I would say it's beginning
1: to, Luke. Um, like I think much of the field, we probably are about 50% through digesting the impact of the ira and this legislation um i think we have one optimistic eye that sometimes thinks that um congress is going to be able to you know fix this to 13 and 13 for both small and large molecules that would certainly make sense but i think we sometimes wake up with one pessimistic eye which says that it could easily become uh nine and nine given the polling and i think that would send shock waves through the industry to be frank um I think already we're starting to see from some of our um, large pharma colleagues, um, CEOs and R&D executives um, start to state their position on this and and the ramifications of how they make decisions. Um, And so I think it's going to have real consequences if it's not adjusted. I wouldn't say that at Third Rock we've over indexed on it too much, Um, but I think there are certainly times where certain approaches especially ones where you know the the strategy of land in a high benefit risk smaller niche orphan indication make a big difference for patients and establish the the merits of a new drug with the eye towards then using that knowledge and information to go explore a much larger indication the ira you know, prevents that kind of strategy and disincentivizes that strategy, which is incredible to believe, given that you know roughly fifty percent of all approvals are in orphan indications, and we've transformed human health because of the ability to work confidently in niche indications that can then be expanded over time. To 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 step in the way of that at a time when it's impacted so many lives is hard to understand. So that's my optimistic view that common sense will prevail here. But um, I think it's going to take a lot of work and uh, a lot of input from different stakeholders into our congressional leaders.
0: Now, I know there are people working on um, adjustments or (laughs) fine-tuning of the existing law. and There's there's litigation, of course, Um, but just zooming back out to the bird's-eye view here, I mean, when you look at the world of science and the potential for new companies to translate some of our understanding of basic biology, disease processes, and then this whole toolkit of all the different modalities, from small molecules to biologics to cell therapy, gene therapy, bispecifics, ADCs. I mean, there's a list now of like really powerful new medicines. Um, that can go after a whole bunch of new molecular targets that we've been able to connect the dots, are really driving disease, uh, working in part in tandem uh, in processes uh, to cause disease. I mean I, I happen to this is my bias. I think we're in a golden age for drug discovery and development and um running the risk of um, Blowing it, um, <laughs> I I sure hope it doesn't happen that uh, turn out that way, but um, it certainly could.
1: Yeah, I, I tend to be optimistic on that. And Luke, I think um, human innovation throughout history has faced enormous challenges. You know, global wars, global pandemics, all sorts of things that are arguably more existential than than uh, a couple of lines in, in a law and and human innovation isn't held back. Um, you mentioned, you know, the modality toolkit we have right now. I mean, we don't, you know, probabilistically discover medicines. Now we engineer them. We engineer the small molecules and the large molecules, cell and gene therapy, ADCs, radiopharmaceuticals. these are now discovered with engineering principles and the linearity and the speed that we can get the hypothesis testing now is at a pace that it's never been uh, at, uh, you know, in history. And our ability to deliver these medicines with greater and greater precision, and, and this isn't an oncology topic anymore for patient selection or, or rare genetic diseases. It's now an inflammation and autoimmunity and in neuroscience, in, in other diseases. Those principles that oncology laid out for us are being applied and will be applied even more into the future in other disease areas and and we're fortunate to be in a space where it's the convergence between fields where the real excitement comes from you know biology at scale and and deep learning deep machine learning um you know our ability to detect and infer and impute uh from large scale data sets with computation is like happening at a remarkable pace Th- those three areas to me are are the ones that you know cause me to wake up every morning so excited to come into work and and same with our teams and and I think even in the face of some of the headwinds that might exist uh on the on the policy side um they're they're not going to be held back Luke it's just too special a time right now in our industry and I think it's going to be a remarkable you know number of decades to come because of it
0: Last thing I want to ask you about, Reed, um, I know you and Third Rock um, have made a, a really substantial pledge to Life Science Cares, um, a nonprofit that uh, both you and I support, um, program to create 1,000 internships for young people from underrepresented backgrounds to come work in the industry by 2027. And this is all around the country. Um <clears throat> Why do you think now is a good time for a young person to enter this uh, this world of biotech? I think of the same
1: reason I entered into it. it's it's curiosity and a wonder of what's yet to be discovered and and a belief that you can impact a patient by that discovery you can impact humanity by that discovery. That is such a compelling proposition, I think, for young people. Um, The trick is getting them in an environment where they can experience it, where they can see it being done, where they can develop role models and mentors around them and, and find champions and organizations to, to bring them along. Once you get a young person with a curious mind in 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 the biotech environment or in the in the drug discovery r&d environment it's usually not hard to crystallize that value proposition of impacting a patient for them i think the more that we can do that the more that we're going to make a dramatic impact on 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 individuals lives including from those that don't have the same level of opportunity that some of us might have been fortunately born with and it's also going to have a dramatic impact on on the workforce in biotech, which is a big um, a big challenge for us ahead as our industry grows. So we were just so thrilled to step up and and partner with you and Life Sciences Cares on 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 Ramp, and I think it's 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 has been and is and will continue to be I think a huge driving force to bring new innovative minds into our field.
0: It's really such an ex- super exciting time. I mean, just a couple days before we're speaking here the European Society for Medical Oncology, I should probably go make a list of the practice changing clinical trial results that were presented there, but it's more than a dozen, I think. Different clinical trials which are absolutely life-transforming for people with these certain types of cancers. And this is the result of 20 30 years uh, it, it's everything that we've been talking about <laughs> the culmination of this it's happening like big big improvements for human health and um i don't think a lot of people are aware in many cases that the of the magnitude of what's happening and in some cases it's happening not that far from where a lot of these people live
1: Yeah, very well said luke we are in a very special time uh, of innovation and and convergence in science and to see that play out in some of the most you know devastating diseases you know bladder cancer now has a new standard of care when that data were were presented uh, at ESMO at the European meeting when the slide came up on overall survival the entire room stood up and applauded i don't remember the last time i saw a standing ovation to a piece of data but it it gave you chills and i think it it just is a really interesting reflection of how a couple decades of work will lead to now, for the next 50 years, a completely different approach to treating what otherwise was a devastating disease. And that's happening in so many different areas. Um, and it's it's a it's a it's a responsibility we all have that like to work in this field to continue to move those sorts of treatments forward.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today, Reed. Thank you, Luke. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was a sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.